Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today we are joined by Diane Bondi, celebrated yoga teacher, author, educator, social justice activist, and a leading voice in the Yoga for All movement and diversity yoga training. In this interview, we talked to Diane about how a body-shaming father led her to develop an eating disorder in childhood, how yoga helped in her recovery, how diet culture keeps us from knowing our true selves, why we lie to ourselves, and how we can learn to live our truth. Diane, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Let's just dive right in. I was hoping you could tell us about your yoga journey. How did how did it start? Uh, it started when I was really young. Uh, my mom, my parents were new immigrants to Canada. I'm Canadian. And uh, my mom had three, well, my parents had three kids under the age of four, and uh, my mom didn't have any support systems, any friends, anything like that, so she decided that she needed to do, you know, back in the day, self-care. It wasn't as um, mainstream as it is now, this idea of taking care of yourself, especially if you're a woman with children. That was like a, you know, not a thing that we did, but she was uh, pretty stressed out being in a new place and having small children and feeling um, just overwhelmed. So she went to the library and got a book called Stay Young with Yoga, and it's been out of print for a long time. And uh, she decided that she was going to take up a yoga practice because it was something she could do in the house that she didn't need to get a sitter for. So when my brother and sister, who are twins, uh, would go to bed or go to sleep in the day, have their nap, my mother would put them in this big bassinet and bring them downstairs and put them beside the sofa. And her and I would grab this book and kind of look through it and look at the funny poses, right? And then try to recreate (laughs) them. And that was like mommy and me time. And then this is like back in 1973. So Mm -hmm. we... Did uh, that's how we did yoga, and the pictures were really funny. It just it, all these people wearing this interesting workout clothing. I don't know if you guys remember uh, body suits that had snap had like the snap crotch. Where you oh my god! <laughs> yes, <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah. Well, I started were- watching Lilius Fallen when she was on. That was my introduction to yoga. I was a okay. teenager, and she would have you know a big unitard or these yes. funny like you know. <laughs> And I was sort of mesmerized by it, watching her body move into poses, you know, and yeah. like when you could clearly see her body. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it funny? Like, that was our yoga, that was our yoga clothing back then. There wasn't <laughs> all this mainstream, you know, athleisure wear. Uh, but, uh, and we used to go to the hardwood store, a hardware store and get a carpet, like a runner that you'd put up the center of your stairs because it had a rubber backing and then it had the carpet on the front. And that was what we used as a yoga mat because Brilliant. it wasn't like you could, yeah, it wasn't like you could just go out to the mall and buy a yoga mat. There, there, these things uh, had not exist. become... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or yoga. Exist. 
Mm-hmm. Not yeah. Oh, for sure. And so we used to just fool around with these poses. And we did it for a long time. As I got older, my mom got interested in meditation. You know how everybody kind of starts out in the physical practice because, oh, we need a little bit of exercise and I can do this at home. And oh, look at that. The breathing helps with the stress. Oh, look at that. There's this other part called meditation. And it just kind of grew from there. And I've been mm-hmm. in and out of the practice for the past 46 years. So what does it look like now? Uh, It looks like all kinds of things. Uh, (laughs) I've aligned my (laughs) yoga practice with uh, social justice work. So I like to um, do yoga for all, yoga for everyone to bring it out to underserved communities, working with people with, you know, disabilities, working with people in bigger bodies, working with um, communities of color. I'm working with uh, women's empowerment. So that's the part of my yoga that I actually live out in the world. And then uh, on the mat, my asana practice is a little bit of everything. So today I practiced with one of my my mentors. I call her Mama G Inder. Uh, she did my teacher training, uh, and she was a great uh, resource in my teacher training because this is part of her culture. And so we get together and we practice together once a week and uh that's we do all kinds of stuff she's really into power yoga which i think is really funny uh she's 68 years old has been practicing for forever and she's always like okay i want to do a really strong practice i'm like oh, but you're so much stronger than me like it's just her and her planks <laughs> and her chaturangas like i today i'm gonna put up a video of us uh doing a little practice i every week i put up her video because it's so cute because she always says to me oh are you gonna record it and put it on instagram i'm like you are so not like my mom my mom would be don't record me doing anything and inder's like let's put it on instagram so <laughs> and she was telling everybody i'm 68 and i'm like i will because you're kicking my you're literally kicking my butt but her whole platform is to show that you could be strong at any age so she's really trying to appeal to you know older women thinking that they they perhaps can't do it so uh that's that's my practice uh for the that's most part. awesome yeah well and i i'm understanding that this movement for body positivity is really only kind of happening in the last five years and i think that's totally. going to be a part of not just body positivity but age positivity and age discrimination can you talk a little bit about how you made that how you became an advocate for body positivity and how that transition happened? Well, you know what's really interesting to me? When I uh, first got into yoga, I didn't understand that there weren't fat people doing yoga. And I, you know, I identify as a, as a person of size as, uh, you know, I like the word fat uh, when I when I use it as a descriptor. To me, fat's not a negative word. It's a descriptor. Like I have, you know, dark hair. Currently my hair is purple. Like I have purple hair. I'm wearing pink yoga pants or whatever it is. So I had to, it took a long time for me to make peace with my body. And uh, the first time that I stepped into a yoga studio was six months postpartum. So up until that point, I had been primarily just practicing at home, mm-hmm. uh, practicing in community centers, but not in a like a dedicated yoga studio space. So I stepped into a space and had a super negative experience when the person who was signing me in the front desk um, made a judgment about my body based on what I looked like. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, what what is this? Like, this is not something I was familiar with. And it really uh, started me thinking about how many other people of size, uh, people of color, people of an interesting age show up to yoga studio spaces and feel not represented um, by whoever's teaching the class, whoever shows up to the class. And how is this whole practice becoming very narrow in its scope that there's only a certain kind of body that does yoga? So uh, that was my first dip in, my first step into the pond. And then I started looking at yoga imagery um, 
in mass media and it wasn't showing me anything that looked like me or that looked mm-hmm. like the people I was practicing with. So, you know, I was, I, the first time I picked up a copy of a mainstream yoga magazine, which will remain unnamed. Um, <laughs> I just, I just flipped through the magazine and was like, Oh, lots of advertising for diets and expensive yoga clothing. And everybody looks like a supermodel. And I was just like, you know what, this, this is not, there has to be other people out in the world who look like me who practice and where are they and why don't I see them and why aren't they part of the conversation? And so, uh, around that time I wrote a blog post that said I was pissed off. So I wrote a blog post that was, uh, yoga isn't just for skinny white girls and you know, it's clickbait, but that was how I was feeling in the moment. I'm like, okay, There's some other people out here who want to practice. And I wrote this blog post for Elephant Journal, and it went viral in, like, I don't know, 15 minutes, an hour. I remember writing it, (laughs) um, them posting it, me, like, going about my day, coming back onto my computer a few hours later and being like, what just happened? Because there are all these people out there. I don't talk about skinny white girls in the blog post. I just talk about everybody else, right? That, you know, we're all also out here. And how dare you make a judgment based on my body? And uh, so I I put that out in the universe. And so many people reached out to me. I think within an hour, it had something like 500 comments on it. And if you go back and look at it today, it's been like there's, there's thousands of comments on it. And so it was really interesting to me how many other people also felt the same way that I did, that they felt like they didn't belong and this practice wasn't for them. And at that point, after writing that blog post, uh, Anna Guest Jelly and, mm. uh, and Melanie Klein reached out to me at the time and we were, they were in the midst of, of writing a book around yoga and body image. And also Melanie Klein was interested in putting together an action arm of the book called the yoga and body image coalition. And then that's how we started coming together as a community to push back against the constant narrative that yoga was for, you know, thin, white, able-bodied, young, young people, yeah. young people. Hypermobile. Uh, hypermobile, yeah, people who look like dancers, people who look like models. And that the beauty industry and the fitness culture had kind of co-opted this practice to make it look like um, something that models did. And I was just like, we, we had to push back against that. And so we started putting together forward facing images within the media and, and telling people stories of what it was like, which culminated in the first book, which was yoga and body image, 25 stories of bravery, beauty. I'm trying to remember the whole title. And then the second book, um, yoga rising, uh, which was about the continued changes we see in the yoga industry, but it's true. Body positivity has taken hold maybe in the past five years, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, the Yoga and Body Image uh, Coalition started in uh, 2014, and we've been doing that work. I started my body positivity career, I would say, in 2008 when I said to everybody, screw that, like anybody can show up here, and how do I start showing this out? How do I start showing the world that this can happen? I think it's exciting to see this happening. I, I've been part of uh, this event in Times Square on the summer solstice called Mind Over Matter. I've been hosting and teaching. It's when 10,000 yogis come together in the heart of the city. Wow. And um, yeah, Aerie by American Eagle, the clothing line, yes. has been Love sponsoring them. it the last four or five years. And it's so magical to see yeah. who gets up on stage and what bodies and the advocacy they're doing. And you know they won't Photoshop anything. They won't, if you hashtag, you've got to have a clean shot. It can't be edited. It can't be filtered. Nice. It's, it's really a wonderful thing to watch happen. 
I'm so grateful to see this happen. I'm a big fan of of Aerie. They are doing great, great body positivity stuff. So that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Diane, tell us like what your work looks like specifically now. Like, are you giving workshops so you can teach people? Are you lobbying? Are you give us the specifics? Well, uh, I just finished a book that was uh, released back in April called Yoga for Everyone, which was uh, published by DK Publishing, which is part of Random House Books. So I just put together a book that's got 50 poses with uh, over four different variations per pose so that people can have a public or, uh, you know, a hard copy resource. I also train teachers on the Yoga for All method. We I have an online program with my friend Amber Carnes, so we do uh, 30 hours of continuing education credit as sanctioned by the Yoga Alliance for teachers who want to learn how to expand their teaching and reach populations that are, you know, typically marginalized or ignored in a mainstream yoga class. Uh, and I do weekend workshops. So I travel the world uh, teaching uh, yoga and teaching people how to become empowered through yoga, teaching um, people how to approach uh marginalized communities and sharing yoga, communities that have been left out of the conversation, whether that's communities of color, uh, communities um, that are practicing or living with disabilities, or, you know, just anybody who feels like, um, or, or plus-sized uh, yogis, anyone who feels like they're, they have never been, um, you know, part of the yoga culture or have been pushed to the margins of the yoga culture because they 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 have a non-conforming body. So I lecture. Um, I got an opportunity to lecture at Princeton. I'm going to be lecturing um, or doing a talk at the University of Buffalo uh, in the new year. Um, and I do a lot of writing for Yoga International. So I do I do a lot of uh, accessibility work on Yoga International. Ohm stars, uh, yoga girl. So that that's what my work looks like. And uh, I just finished a 200-hour teacher training, which focuses um, primarily on making yoga accessible to all bodies. So that's where my work takes me. Uh, I, I love to do weekend workshops, so I'm doing a book signing and a workshop this weekend. And I'm heading off uh, the following weekend to London, England to teach a workshop. And to well, do, that doesn't uh, sound like a, a full signing. schedule at all, now, now does it? Yeah. <laughs> no. no. Not busy, Not busy at all. At all. <laughs> Not busy at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that it's nearly impossible for women, maybe not just women, but to have some body image issues given oh, yeah. the onslaught that we all face. Um, but you actually battled like a for real eating disorder, not, you know, mm-hmm. for real. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because the journey and the transformation from that to where you are now is quite incredible. Yeah, you know, I don't think you can be a woman in the world. I used to say in North America, but I'm now noticing um, <laughs> that this is going on everywhere else too. Mm. I don't think you can be a woman. And at this point, I'm, I'm starting to see this, a, a person in the world and not have uh, a body image issue. We have been marketed to for the latter part I would say of the last century uh, that we, our bodies aren't good enough, right? Like when I think of fitness culture, 
I was put on a diet when I was eight years old because I was a chubby eight-year-old, and that was problematic for everyone, not me per se, but for everyone. So I started dieting pretty early on, and I mean, I was eight years old in 1978 at the height of the fitness craze, right, where everybody was doing uh, Atkins and grapefruit diets and watermelon diets and spinach, just at the height of fad dieting. And my mother had bought in 100% because that's who her generation and her age group is who they were targeting. So we have had this obsession with uh, women's bodies, what women's bodies look like, but creating these unattainable ideals and holding women hostage to them. Uh, You know, since 1861, when we we start to see the first dieting happening. So I don't understand. Like, anywhere I look, I've been told I can be better, I can do better, I can look better, I can, you know, get rid of the cellulite on your thighs. How many times have I stood in the grocery line as a kid and looked at magazines like Cosmopolitan and, and noticed, you know, they're constantly trying to tell us how to be better in our bodies. And I just was like, how does anybody come back from that? It's a constant onslaught of, you know, you're not good enough. Your body's not good enough, you you know. And so I don't know how you couldn't possibly have a body image issue. I developed an eating disorder uh, when I was about 10 years old, and I battled with it for the better part of 30 years in and out of treatment, in and out of um, residential treatment. And it wasn't until I got pregnant in 2005 that I really had to look at what it is that I was doing to my body. And I, and I hear it's common for women to suspend eating disorder behaviors uh, when they become pregnant. And that's what I ended up doing, mm-hmm. suspending eating disorder behaviors. And then I started thinking to myself, if I can be this kind to my body when I'm sharing it with somebody else, why can I not be this kind to my body when it's just my own? You know what I mean? And so I started really reevaluating uh, my relationship with my body at that time. And I got back to my yoga practice in 2005 with vim and vigor. I had been dropping in and dropping it out of it for the, for over, you know, for the past 40 plus years. And then I made a decision that if I was going to be a mom that I wanted to show up for my kid fully. And I can't do that if I'm distracted constantly by, by what I look like. And so it's been a battle. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, for a long time when my kids were little, I wouldn't take pictures with my kids because, uh, uh, in a bathing suit or at the beach, I'd always be covered up and hiding. And my husband would always be out there having a good time with the boys. And it finally, it finally dawned on me that they're not looking at me, um, because my body is large, they're just like, why isn't mom having a good time with us? And I had to really start to reevaluate my relationship with my body. But it's been a journey. It's been, it's been tough. And uh, I had a, I had a, uh, I had a diagnosis of a, of a hyperactive thyroid back in 2016, where I started losing all this weight. Um, if anybody knows about hyperactive thyroid, everything just speeds up, and I was losing mm-hmm. all this weight, and everybody was telling me how great I was looking, and I'm just like. Really? Because I feel like hell. I feel terrible. I feel sick. And it went undiagnosed for a better part of a year. And I lost a whole bunch of weight. And then people were, you know, constantly commenting on how healthy I looked when I was at my most unhealthy. And it just, it's been an ongoing battle. It's been an ongoing practice to make peace with your body, to constantly be countering what society tells us when anybody sees me who hasn't seen me in a while, I look different than what I did, you know, three years ago, they have to comment on my body size. And I, I often tell them losing weight is not a measure of health. 
um, if anything, for me, it was a, me a measure of illness and a serious illness that, that came close to killing me a couple of times. So it's just, it's, a, it was a hard, hard journey, but it started with, for me, making peace with my body started with my kids with, you know, I'm missing out on life. I'm not showing up to life. I'm waiting to do things. I don't feel like I'm good enough. What's that about? And who benefits from that narrative who benefits when i um in a when i'm in a place of self-loathing then i had to look at why i'm in this place of self-loathing and how my yoga practice could help me get back on track to a place of peace right where i where i could look in the mirror and i don't have to love what i see but i can be at peace with it i don't have to be critical and i think meditation reflection self-study asana and surrounding myself with people who were not caught up in their own body image has been instrumental in shifting my way the way that I look at my body well you talk about the word distraction and saying you know uh, image body image ideas from a lot of well men too but even women as a young age we start to put our focus on what we're what we look like what we're wearing you know as a teenager and what our identity is and would you call distraction and addiction? Do you think those are parallel things and or is it about more about control? How do you how do you see those kind of coming together? I you know, now that you said it, I've never considered that, but now that you said it, I can see that because you are almost obsessed constantly with what mm -hmm. you look like. And that's an addiction. Like to be obsessed it's an addiction, with right? Yeah, anything. for sure, to anything. And I think to myself, if I wasn't so distracted in university about what does my hair look like? What did my clothes look like? Did I get to the gym today? Oh my God, I think I'm gaining weight. If I wasn't distracted to that, how much better I would have done at school? How much, how, how much better my relationships with others would have been at school because I would have been so critical on myself? And, you know, definitely, now that this is a good contemplation point for me now, I definitely oh, think good. it's an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's anything that's going to take our, whatever our obsession is going to be. I mean, if you're Maybe it's somebody of the opposite sex, or it's a relationship, or it's it's a you know, clothing or material things. Whatever our whatever we deem important is probably going to become a bit of an addiction if it's not a positive thing that's you know that we're placing our attention on. It's true. And then think of all I just think of all the things that I did in order to achieve a certain aesthetic that was so detrimental to my well-being that created so much trauma in my body. I often think it's a miracle for all the things that I have done to my body. It's a miracle that I'm standing today. It's a miracle that it, my body was healthy enough or able to have children. It's a miracle that I can practice a strong practice. And I have to and I look at that as as the relationship with my body as this extension of the divine that no matter what I've done to it over the past 49 years, it still has shown up for me in a way that has been incredible. You know, I have a capacity to love. I have a capacity to, to do great in the world. I can do a handstand. Like, these are all things that I'm like, what? My body should have, you know, for the amount of time I've, I've, I've abused my body, I shouldn't be able to do any of these things. I, you know, and it, and that alone has allowed me to create a place of peace with my body to just kind of focus on how it shows up for me no matter what. And I don't know that we have friends that show up for us no matter, no matter what, no matter how you abuse them. At some point they're going to say, you know, enough's enough. And I've been, I've been super fortunate that my body has, um, has, uh, you know, been able to sustain me and has persevered over all the damage that I've done to it. Yeah. 
you you have talked about how diet culture and body image issues can keep us from knowing our true self. Totally. So how did that how did that play for you and can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, for me, I think when I was a kid, my dad was particularly harsh on me. He told me that he never wanted a fat daughter and that I was a suit. I was a huge disappointment. So he oh. always, equi- oh yeah, oh right out. Oh. I know. So stellar. Oh. Some excellent parenting there. It's amazing. Like I said, it's amazing. I'm still here. But um, he always equated fat with stupid, right? Mm-hmm. And when we when we look at the media images, we often equate, equate fat with stupid or fat with greedy, or fat with lazy, and all those kinds of things, right? Which none of those things are true. But if you look at the at the narrative that runs through modern culture, we're really quick to demonize fat people. And so when you when that happens, that set me up, right? That set me up to be particularly hard on myself. It set me up to think that I was stupid. It set me up to think that I wasn't worth anything. And when you don't feel like you have value, then you don't show up in the world. Right. Like you're like, absolutely. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough to show up in the world. So you don't ever get to know who you really are. You don't ever get to know that you are a smart person and that you have something to offer when you are constantly told that these things are true of you simply based on your size. And honestly, what I've seen with um, on the flip side of it, I've seen people who are naturally uh, have a have a metabolism that allows them to look like. Uh, what the beauty standard is, be particularly critical and harsh of people who don't have that natural metabolism, that they come to this body without any effort, and then they're, they're highly critical of people who who come to that, their, their particular body size without any effort, and that they have genetics on their side, and they get to be really critical of other people. And I just think it's amazing how we, we you know, people can walk around in the world with this thin privilege and then look down their nose at people who don't fit into that that particular group of people and just assume it's their fault or assume they deserve it. Or it's just the narrative of how, how many ways the world comes at you and tells you you're not worthy is incredible. And if you're not strong enough to look beyond that, you'll never get, you'll never get out of, you'll never create um, a loving relationship with yourself. You'll never live up to your full potential. If you continue to believe all those narratives that come at you. And it's easy to do because it's constant and it's insidious. Now we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Diane to give a shout out to our show partners. Shambhala Publications is the proud publisher of our book, Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat, as well as the newly released The World Comes to You, notes on practice, love, and social action by Michael Stone. As a listener of our show, you get 30% off your purchase with code SUCHA30 at Shambhala.com. That's S-A-T-Y-A, all caps on SUCHA. Support for Living It is also brought to you by Alchemy Forever, a clean and clinical skincare line developed by Switzerland's top dermatologist. The products are anti-aging, paraben-free, gluten-free, cruelty-free, and ideal for all skin types. Use the code SUTRA20, all caps again on SUTRA, to get 20% off your Alchemy Forever products on alchemy-forever.com. And now, back to our conversation with Diane. You know, you're known for having conversations about really tough subjects, racism, and like we're talking about Mm -hmm. fat shaming and stereotypes, yoga and money. Have you ever gotten into a situation where it's been really hard for you to speak your truth or where you've gotten the kind of pushback that just 
by the situation you had to you know, repress some of it or not uh, you, I, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> I might think maybe not you. No, I always speak my truth. I spend a lot of time not speaking my truth. And uh, my, my brother and I had this conversation. Uh, we grew up very much in a time where it was go along, get along. So we put up with casual mm-hmm. racism in our lives because, you know, this is just how the world was and we were just going to have to function within this world. You know, white supremacy is what it is. And this is the, is the context that we have to work within. And it never occurred to me that I could be a catalyst for change simply by speaking my truth. And I never thought mm-hmm. in a million words, a million years that I'd be saying, Nope, this isn't right. Like white supremacy, I can't go along and get along or things will never change. So I've had lots of situations where people want to give me pushback on, you know, white supremacy. And I, I spent a lot of time talking about it in my last 200 hour teacher training. And I'm grateful that the Yoga Alliance has put in um, new standards to talk about inclusivity and diversity and all the things that go along with that. So now it's mandated for 200 hour um, yoga teacher trainings, but I've always It's about time, about it. isn't it? No kidding. It's unbelievable. But I get pushback from people who haven't experienced racism because they're white or they haven't experienced, uh, you know, fat shaming because they're thin and they're flexible, giving me pushback. Well, I don't agree with that. You don't have to agree with it. This is my lived experience, right? And you spend a lot of time, or I don't actually spend a lot of time trying to convince those people. I focus my attention on people who are looking to create change and are open to hearing the experience of other people. And that showed up in my teacher training, which I thought was really interesting because if you read my bio, it's pretty clear on who I am and what I'm going to talk about so this can't be a surprise to you right <laughs> these conversations like this can't be a surprise so that was really interesting to me but that there's still people out there that think racism is not a thing or uh that you know people of color or, or people of size or, or people from the lgbtqia community are simply complaining about things that are no longer happening and i just think that that's unbelievable so i love confrontation i don't know if you guys know this about me i love confrontation i i never back down from a challenge i will always speak up um in context where even when it's not safe like a a, one of my students said to me uh an activist in the states who was one of the founders of the black museum recently turned up in the back of a uh, turned up uh, you know dead in the back in the trunk of a car and she was like very concerned for me talking about these things but I tell her I'm willing to die for it because I thought I really thought in 2019 we'd be further along I didn't think that I would have to have the conversation with my kids about race that my parents had with me 35 years ago Mm -hmm. I was really hoping we were gonna be past this by now so uh, the work isn't done and as long as the work is out there I'll be talking about it so well I think you make a good point that I like your word I don't know if it's your word, but casual racism, you know, you can have casual ageism and casual, you know, sexism. And, you know, growing, I grew up, I'm a few years younger than you, just a few years younger. And I grew up at the same time where as a girl, I didn't really, you know, why didn't I take shop class? You know, why didn't the the boys learn how to sew? And why, why do we keep those divisions? And I didn't know there was anything wrong with that, you know, at that age and that that was a kind of casual division but I think that's what we have to do slowly because it is so casual that we can't see it. It is. It, so- it's Again, it's insidious. And it's funny because I'm raising two boys now, two men, and my son will catch me in my casual sexism. So I'll say something like, oh, that's my, you know, that 
typical man. And my son will go, is that right? So what's typical about it? And I'll be like, oh my God, you are <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. No, he calls me out on all my stuff. So There are so <laughs> many ways we marginalize each other. It's crazy. Yep. It's true. And it's so casual. And I, you know, and I can't just let the casual stuff fly because that's the insidious stuff. That's the seed that gets planted when it's casual or I didn't mean anything by it or it was just a joke. I, you know what? I don't think it's funny. To, to, I don't think sexism funny. I don't think racism is funny. I don't think ageism is funny. I don't think uh, fat phobia or fat shaming is funny. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I had somebody, somebody put up something really horrible on Instagram around this time last year. And somebody tagged me in it to say, well, what do you think of this? And I reposted it and I said, this has got to stop. And somebody on my page said, this is what I hate about you body positive activists. You can't take a joke. And I'm like, then I lost my shit. I just was like, this is not, this is not a joke. This is a state of mind. This is, we are making fun of a group of people and you think it's okay. And I said, you know, you know, I'm going to save you some time by blocking you from my page. Cause I don't need to have this conversation with people like you go out there and do some self study as to why you think this is funny. Why you think making fun of a whole group of people is okay. Especially when you're not part of that group of people. So stop it. Good for you. And good for you not to put the energy on it. Cause then we can no. get so caught up in a fight. No, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I um, when I especially like on places like Twitter, people could be particularly mean on Twitter. And on Twitter, I see that I never engage. Like if I'm if I can't change your mind, and if you want to come for me, that's fine. But I don't have time to engage you because I'm not going to change your mind. I'm interested in the people who want to do work, who want to do the self reflection, who want to step out and, and, and do stuff. You're just trying to silence me. That's why if I'm caught up fighting with you over your belief, I can't go out in the world and do what it is I need to do. So that's just a form of silencing me and I don't have time for it. So you can fight with yourself. Amen. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. I'm not here for it. You do you. I'll do me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we wanted to talk to you, obviously, about Satya and and honesty and truthfulness. And I think those little things, it's like a little lie. And those little lies always then snowball into a bigger thing, right? So if you don't nip the little joke in the bud or the casual sexism, racism, whatever, in the bud, if you don't start to look at the truth of what you're saying – then that's how that gets ingrained in this really big way in our culture, I think. It does. And I just read a study. I can't remember who talked about it. I did do so much reading. It could have been Dr. Robin D'Angelo. I can't remember. But if we, um, as a black person, I talk to my children about race because I don't have a choice. I have to talk to them about race. I have to talk to them how, about how they're going to be seen in the world, what some of their barriers are going to be, where, where some of the places are that they're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. I have to give them the whole picture of who they're going to be in the world. And I often say to white parents, please talk to your kids about race. And there is this feeling that in the past, that if we didn't talk about race or we didn't talk about sexism or we didn't talk about, um, you know, being gay, uh, that that somehow people would come to this realization that everybody deserves to live. And if we don't talk about race, then racism will go away. If we don't talk about sexism, then sexism will go away. If we don't talk about homophobia, then homophobia will go away. When we don't talk to our children, the next generation, about these topics, then they form their opinions and their understanding of those Mm -hmm. topics based on the stereotypes that have been perpetuated for for time and time again. So if you do not talk to your kids about race, 
they pick up on what society tells them about race and they make those assumptions and it becomes part of their understanding of how the world works. And so that's really challenging. So it's important for us, everybody has to have a conversation with their kids about race, but I think especially people who are not of color need to, you know, look at what they believe, look at why they believe it, understand that we live in a, in a white supremacist culture, that it's not your fault that you believe the things you do. The system is set up and designed to teach you certain things. It is your it is your job, you know, as, a, as an individual to question why you believe the things you believe and then have these conversations with your kids because we won't stop it if we don't talk about it, right? We won't stop it if we don't educate ourselves and not talking about it and pretending that everybody's the same is not going to help. It hasn't helped. We've been trying this for the past 30 years and it hasn't been helpful. So I couldn't agree with that more with the education of our children. It's like, yeah. if somebody, if somebody ha is sick or has a disease, you can't, if we can't ignore it and it's going to go away, you have to treat the disease. It's true. <laughs> It's true. I, I heard you say on a podcast before that you can't heal a body you hate, which, oh, yeah. I, which I love. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. But I'm curious if if um, being African-American was part of that. Did that ever come in? Canadian. For you? Diane, that? aren't you Canadian? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's so funny whenever I... I'm Canadian. I it's it's so funny whenever I go anywhere. I always say I I know I look like an African American, but I'm not. If you know I'm Canadian, <laughs> and it's even funny because it happens even here in Canada where where Canadians will refer to other Canadians as African Americans, and I'm like we're not. If 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 I had to categorize categorize myself, I'd say I'm a Caribbean Canadian. But in uh, in the broader vernacular, I find that referring to people as as black is just really safe in my community. But yes, mm. as a person of color as a black woman uh it's easy to hate your body right so for a long time when i was growing up uh twiggy who had set the standard mm -hmm. in the late 60s for what what beauty was was this very thin model right we would have called them the waif model in the 90s and my body is just not built that way right like i always had thighs i always had a butt like i always had this particular um figure that was not deemed beautiful, right? Like that whole F, a European centric standard of beauty that I was never going to be able to live up to. And when up for, for a long time, when I was growing up, when I think of the shows of the seventies that I was exposed to, like Charlie's angels and, and, you know, things like that, where I didn't see myself represented, or if I did see myself represented, it was tokenism, right? It was that one black person in the yep. whole that doesn't represent diversity. So it became very easy to uh, hate the fact that my body was a certain size, which is what helped me perpetuate an eating disorder in, in my attempts to look like Barbie, even though I was never going to look like Barbie. Um, that, that really fostered a, a sense of self-hate. Or if I did see myself represented, things like good times, like that all black people are poor or all black people come from single parent families. Like a lot of these stereotypes that are designed to, to make you feel bad about who you are and where you come from was really hard on establishing my image or making, you know, coming to terms with my body image. So those were things that really helped perpetuate my self-hate. Uh, the fact that I didn't have, you know, I went to, I went to an all white school, so I didn't have other people that looked at me. I got picked on relentlessly for being black. And so it, it was super tough, you know, to, to show up in this body. And what's really interesting to me now are the fact that we are now commodifying the things that 
black women in particular get villainized for us. So now everybody's getting this Brazilian butt lift. So everybody wants this big butt. Everybody's getting lip injections. Like all, like when we look at the Kardashians, they totally get to commodify black uh, beauty standards. And then they're held to this, this esteem. And meanwhile, you know, black women who, who naturally come by some of these features, uh, we are ashamed for it. And I just think it's incredibly right. interesting, like incredibly interesting. I read an article from some celebrity that said they wanted to have a European face and an African body. And I was like, what is what? happening? What is going on? Like, I just was like, I have to turn off the internet before I, you know, stop the world. I want to get off. I like when I heard that, I was just like, I just can't with this anymore. Can we you know, not? What happened? Like, what happened to, I want to be the best version of myself. <laughs> what happened to that? Exactly. And this is a celebrity that's going to influence a bunch of people, oh. right? Like, you know, I was just like, let's not do this. Why can't I just show up in the world and be content to be where I am, right? Why can't we all just practice a little Santosha, right? Like, oh my God, <laughs> I was so over it. I'm like, stop the world. I'm getting off. <laughs> Diane, why is it that, why do you think we don't, tell the truth to ourselves, to others, in the media, mm. all of it. A couple of things. I think it's hard to look at yourself, right? I think we all want to believe that we are good people. And if we take a hard long look at ourselves and we realize some of the shitty things we've done in the world, we'll, we'll make us question whether we're good people so that it's easier to lie to ourselves. I think, um, also, uh, it's hard work. If you practice yoga and you're doing your self-study pr practices, it's really hard work to look at yourself. And nobody really wants to do it. Let's be honest, right? So I remember I was getting uh, a review at work when I worked as an accountant. And my boss pulled me in the office. It was your yearly review, whether or not you were going to get a raise or how much your raise was going to be. And he used to say to me, what I don't like about you, Diane, is that you're reactionary. And I was just like, I am not reactionary. <laughs> yes. And I went and sat at my desk and fumed about it. And I got angry about it. And I got angry at him. And then, then I had to think to myself, it took me a long time to go, well, maybe there's some truth maybe in what little. he's saying. And that stuff is, you just don't want to believe the bad stuff about yourself. But there's no way to like fully understand why you believe the things you believe or why you behave the, the way you behave unless you do that self-study. And it's hard work and it's just easier to lie to yourself. So I... I've been in, uh, <laughs> been doing a lot of self-study lately, and it's just, you know, it's exhausting. I spend a lot of time in my head going, oh, oh, you had a reaction like that. What's that about? Oh, maybe you believe this about yourself. And I'm just like, and down the rabbit hole I go, well, where did this start coming up, and why do I believe this? But, I mean, I like it, but it's exhausting, and that's one thing. Also, in the media, things work better in stereotypes. Um, mm -hmm. My One of my... Um, teachers, Dr. Gail Parker. Uh, she's from Detroit and she used to have a, a TV show or be on a TV show in Detroit back in the seventies and eighties and had talked to a television producer and had asked her that whole question. Uh, you know, why do we always just perpetuate the stereotypes? She says, because stereotypes sells and it's easy, right? It's the easy, it's the low hanging fruit to buy into the stereotype. It's the easy laugh to buy into the stereotype. And that's why we lie to ourselves. And it's not that stereotypes aren't 
true. Some of them are, but the problem is they only tell one story. It's not the only story. There's lots of other stories, but we zero in on the ones that we can make fun of, that make us feel good, you know, you know that that perpetuate our beliefs. And I think we at the end of the day, we just don't want to believe we're bad people. So it's easy to to lie to ourselves in order to make ourselves feel better about why we do the things we do. Well, I think it's sort of like dating, you know, when you, when you, if you've ever done online dating and you make your profile, you say of all the good things about yourself, you know, we don't say, ah, it's quick to anger, right. can be lazy, <laughs> is reactive, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why don't we do that? I mean, if we would have much better relationships if we were up front and said, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm pretty triggered by X, Y, and Z, you know, but yeah. we have to know what that is for ourselves before we could even deal with that. And I think that's what you're saying is a good amount of the time we're not really willing to lurk, look because no. I don't want to know that I can be a, a real jerk. Right. Because but, that I, it, but I can. You can. And it flies in the face of your belief of yourself as a good person, right? That's it's, right. You know, you're still a good person. You just tend to be a jerk sometimes. And, and you can't, right. it, it seems to be all or nothing that it can't, that it can't be both, right? That these things are mutually exclusive. I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I'm petty. I sometimes will uh, text my girlfriend. I call myself uh, Diane P. Bondi. The P is for petty. Sometimes I'm petty. Sometimes I'm right? reactionary. Sometimes I'm mean. Sometimes I'm angry. I'm all of these things. And that's I'm still a good person. And I think that's the hard, that's the hard thing that people can't seem to draw the parallel, that you can still be these things and still be a good person. And still be a yogi. We, ha- we interviewed yes. Sharon Salzberg for our our first season, who I'm sure you know is a yes. Buddhist. I have all her um, books. <laughs> oh, she's so great. And one of the one of our questions, I'm probably going to get this her answer not quite right, but was like, how do you know meditation is working? How do you know yoga is working? Mm-hmm. And she paused and she had this big laugh and she said, well, you're, you're kind of just a little bit less of an asshole. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Truth! That is true. You no, know, it's true. It's not like all of a sudden we're doing these practices yeah. and we're perfect. No, I've met a lot of assholes in yoga. A lot of assholes. I think there were less assholes that weren't yogis. But uh, yeah, it, it's true though. But it's part of humanity. It's a uh, we are all things, right? We are not one singular thing. And and it's funny because often I'll see memes come up on Instagram or wherever, and they'll be like. Um, can you be a yogi and still be angry? I'm like, yeah, I'm angry all the time. And I find that my anger is a really good motivator to make change in the world. Like we always want to label anger as this horrible negative quality. I don't think it has to be. I think it's okay to be angry sometimes. Maybe not all the time, but I mean, it can be productive for some people, right? Absolutely. And well, it's harnessing power. You know, if if you're intense, you got to, we have to harness our intensity. If you're Reactive, good. Be positively reactive. Exactly. Or be passionate. I mean, Amanda Seals always says, we're not angry, we're passionate. And I love that. (laughs) I love that distinction, right? I love it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I love that you said that you've met plenty of asshole yogis. So let's let's talk about honesty in the yoga community for a minute because... Yeah. 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 So let, let's start. Let's start positive. How how are we living our truth as a yoga community? And then maybe where can we 
do better? You know, I find a lot of people, we're still in the infancy stages, I think. I know yoga's had a big boom over the last 20 years. I remember um, when I was teaching yoga in the early 90s, uh, having, you know, we called it stretch class, having a couple people in my class, and then Madonna started doing yoga, and then everybody in the 90s when she was in her heyday, and then all of a sudden she was, everybody was doing yoga. When Mm -hmm. she started doing yoga, it became this big, I went from having like six or seven people in my class to like, like, what's going on here? Or Dr. Oz started talking about yoga on his show. And then the next day at the yoga studio, it'd be jammed. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, Dr. Oz is talking about yoga, right? That's why everybody's here. I think it's great that we're all taking a moment to pause and to actually, you know, do some self-care and some self-reflection. Uh, and, and I think that's changed the world. I, I don't think uh, it, like, the, I think the self-awareness piece of it has been really important. Uh, instrumental in changing uh, activism, in making people accountable, in asking people to pause for a minute. I think that's really helpful. I mean, not everybody's doing that. People are just flipping around on the mat doing asana, and that's fine too. But I think that's been a real, really positive in changing the way we show up in the world, per se. Uh, But I still think we do get we're human and we still get caught up in our human emotions of uh, jealousy and anger and um, you know that's part of it but I, I really think that the 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 rise in the yoga industry or the rise in people doing mindfulness practices has made people more aware about how they show up in the world and how their life impacts others. Because I have met, I said I've met a lot of assholes in yoga, but I've also met a lot of great people who are really interested in the practice of unity, in the practice of accessibility. And I've met some of the best people of my life on the yoga mat. So it, you know, it's all about balance, right? So I met the worst of, I've met the worst of humanity. I've met the best of humanity. And I think that's that's just the way it, that's just the way it is. You think we're making progress? I do think we're making progress. I think you know what's really funny. Uh, well, it's funny and sad, I guess. I, whenever I do these talks about diversity and inclusion and white supremacy, I always say to the world, the best thing that ever happened to America is the election of the current regime. And I call it a regime here in Canada as I look over there in America. I said <laughs> that's the best thing that happened to America because for a long time we lived in this denial of that everything was was okay and we're all getting along and you know what I remember when President Obama was elected and I think somebody on CNN news said we're in a post-racial America and I went only a white person would say that <laughs> the rest of us know better <laughs> rest of us know better um but you know it's it's just it it's a great self-reflection tool. And I think those of us who have spent any time paying attention, right? Because that's what yoga does. It raises our consciousness, right? It encourages us to pay attention. It encourages us to be uncomfortable. It encourages us to speak up. It encourages us to uh, help unify. And I think all those are evident in the way that people have been coming together in the wake of this crisis of who's been elected to the highest office in the land. When I look out at the squad, right, AOC and Ilion and um, Presley and, and the squad, when I look out at them speaking up and speaking out, I think that's an, that, I think they're practicing yoga because they're looking to unify and they're looking to connect and they're raising our consciousness as to what's going on in the world. And that's yoga. Whether it's whether you're flipping around on your mat or you're showing up in the world, we're seeing people take action. And the word karma in yoga means action. We're seeing all that happening now. And we weren't doing that before. So I think it's had a massive 
massive effect because more people than ever before are practicing yoga. And even if you're just doing the asana, you know there's a bigger calling. You know that your consciousness is being raised and you're paying attention and you're showing up in the world like we've never, like we never have before. And I'm just going to say it's because of the yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one of the positive things about social media. You know, I was, I'm of all my friends was like the last to get on Facebook and the last to get on Instagram, the last, you know, and then I thought, all right, I'm I'm going to use it the right way. Yeah. It can be accessible, you know, and I think totally, but I think that's, that's one way we're definitely making movement, you know, a small individual making movement who doesn't have big, big, big power per se in a, in the, in the traditional way that we can, you know, a a simple hashtag starts connecting people. So I think, I think we are definitely making headway. We are. We are. And and I really think it's connecting us in a way that it never has before. I love social media because it's the democratization of celebrity. You don't need for a company to find you. You don't need for a producer to find you. Like think of all the people who have had amazing careers, including myself, based on a social media presence where you can start a movement and you can find Mm -hmm. followers and you can be this ripple in a pond that could change the world. It's amazing. It is when you think about it. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Diane, I am always conscious of the time. So our last question for you. Okay. The question we ask everyone. The subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. And so what we wanted to do is really make this amazing wisdom accessible and modern and personal and really relevant and tangible. So... What off-the-mat practice really helps you live your truth? I would have to say uh, my activism. It, uh, speaking up, speaking out, and looking for opportunities to connect with people who look different from me, with people who have a different lived experience than me. It's been um, being conscious of the world around me, not living for a long time. I lived from my neck upwards. It was, it's living fully has been the biggest contribution to how I move through the world and hopefully have impact on how the world changes so that it's a better place for my children to grow up in. That's beautiful. Thank you. And powerful. Powerful. It's it's truthful. I, I just, I never thought in a million years. When I was sitting at my desk 20 years ago, I was an accountant full-time before I uh, decided to become a, a yoga teacher full-time, which I, I cautioned people, don't give up your full-time career. It's a, it's a hustle and it's tough. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's been the most rewarding work ever because I have seen incredible change in the world and right I you know I'm talking to you I would have never been talking on a podcast like this sharing my beliefs or my lived experiences and hopefully having an an impact and empowering others to do the same because it is you know we cannot be what we do not see so it's important for all of us to be seen so that we feel like we belong in this place that is so vast and so diverse and so and so necessary in order to unite humanity that's inspiring yes Thank you, Diane. This was absolutely fantastic. What a treat. Oh, thank you. Definitely. We, we're going to have to have you on again because I feel like we have so <laughs> we much more to talk about. Yeah. I yes. love that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Diane and where she's teaching, visit DianeBondiYoga.com. 
You can find links to this, as well as more information about the resources we discussed in the episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. For those of you interested in deepening your practice while also enjoying some sun and sea, Amy is leading her annual retreat in Mexico, December 1st through the 8th. Visit tantramadison.com for more info. For those of you who can't escape to the beach, I'm leading an online course on the sutras this fall. Send me an email at kelly at livingitpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, listeners get 30% off The World Comes to You and Living the Sutras at Shambhala with the code SUCHA30 and 20% off at Alchemy Forever with the code SUTRA20. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited to keep doing this. Please share this with your friends. Message us on Instagram at Kelly DiNardo and at Amy Pierce Hayden. Email us through our website, livingitpodcast.com. Subscribe in iTunes. Write a review. We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep the podcast going. Thanks for listening.